0: Hey everybody, welcome to the Asian Boss Podcast. If you're familiar with what we do here at Asian Boss, you would know that we're all about trying to bridge social and cultural gaps between Asia and the West and bringing people's voices together. The guest you're about to meet in this episode has been showing the real Japan to the rest of the English speaking world for years. Chris Broad is one of the biggest YouTubers and OG foreign vloggers based in Japan. And his documentaries are so good at entertaining that you'd rather watch him than any other mainstream stuff on BBC. Our guest host Kay had a chance to sit down with Chris for a chat, so let's dive right in. You're listening to the Asian Boss Podcast, and the following is a conversation with Chris Broad. Hi Chris, uh, I've known about your content, watched your videos for a really long time now, and I can't believe that this is the first time we're actually connecting. How are you?
1: (laughs) Yeah. I'm good, thank you, Kate. Yeah, I mean, I've seen your face on YouTube for the last sort of nine years that I've been doing this, right? Uh, You guys have been going, I think, the the same length of time, if not longer, and uh, yeah, I've always seen your face. I've seen Asian Boss everywhere. Amazing videos, and uh, it's a real pleasure to finally meet you face-to-face and have a chat from the new studio as well. It's the first interview I've actually done from the studio, so that's cool.
0: You know, so you're arguably one of the biggest and most well-recognized like foreign YouTubers in Japan with more than 2.4 million YouTube subscribers. And I'm sure a lot of our viewers um, know about you already. But for the people who might not know about you, um, how would you introduce yourself?
1: Oh, I don't know. I mean, British guy living in Japan wannabe filmmaker british guy living in Japan um that that's pretty much the tagline but I mean I i've yeah I've lived here nine years now I've called it home nine years I've made 200 videos and um, yeah I, I'd like to think I've got a good youtube channel about Japan and uh yeah it's been a wild ride these last these last nine years but uh, yeah I just try and introduce kind of aspects of Japanese culture a lot of travel lots of sort of intriguing aspects of the culture but uh Yeah, I've just tried to show off Japan through my eyes living in the sort of the rural areas of the country because most YouTubers, even now, most foreign YouTubers living in Japan live in cities like Tokyo, Nagoya, Osaka but I've been very lucky to live in North Japan in places like Yamagata and Miyagi and so it's been a real privilege to sort of showcase those regions uh, of Japan to the world in a way that we just didn't have, even when I first moved here in 2012, like I remember typing in, like, Tohoku, uh, North Japan, and and all we had is the earthquake, the tsunami, bad things. The town that I moved to, uh, Sakata, there was nothing on Wikipedia, it said Sakata has a cherry tree. And that, that was literally it, and I was like, oh, brilliant. It's gonna be amazing, isn't it? Let's go! But, uh, it's come a long way since then, at least these days, thanks to, um, You know, a lot of YouTubers living in Japan and traveling or Asian boss, like we've able to have sort of an interesting viewpoint into countries like Japan that we just did not have uh, as recently as 10 years ago.
0: You know, I think I think we share the the same passion for authentic storytelling. And and, uh, you know, I I just uh, love what you've been doing. So let's start from the beginning, though. Like, how did you get started? How did you even come to Japan in the first place? Like, you know, what was the reason for you to come to Japan?
1: Uh, oh, it's a difficult one, really. I mean, it's, I've 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 never enjoyed answering that question because there's always like a expectation that, you know, or oh, maybe I was into karate or maybe I like manga or anime. But really, it was it was very different to that. I was just looking to live and just try and change my life and do something really different and live overseas and leave the UK. Now, I was really interested in Asia. I really wanted to see the world from a completely unique perspective. I didn't want to just go into Europe. I wanted to go really far away, and the only country that really piqued my interest was Japan, for numerous reasons. Um, growing up, my dad was very much into electronics, and Japan was always, and especially in the 90s, Japan was this sort of incredible magical wonderland where everything I used and everything I did came from Japan, from toys and video games consoles to my first digital camera, and it's, everything I, I owned came from Japan. And But then I went to university and uh, I also did some linguistics, uh, did linguistics as my degree, and I did a paper on the Japanese language and Kegel. And that sort of drew me in even further. So it was a multitude of things really, but in a nutshell, I really just wanted a sort of adventurous, fun lifestyle. I thought, I'll go to Japan for a year or two, teach English and um, just try and have a bit of adventure, really. But when I got here, I fell in love with the culture in a way that I just didn't think I would. And I just... it, just, it was so much better than I thought it would be. It exceeded all my expectations. My life in Japan was so good that I just didn't want to leave and uh, also it didn't help that I was called abroad in Japan so that sort of shot myself in the foot there don't ever do that branding lesson 101 don't don't give your name the country of uh, don't don't name your channel after a country but uh, I could have always changed it to a in career would you have changed the uh, ch- the the channel name if if you
0: uh, could go back <sighs>
1: I don't know, I don't think I would, because I hate my name. My name's Chris Broad, and I always hated the name Broad. And then I discovered I could use my name to my advantage and uh, exploit it and have Chris Abroad. So I was pretty happy with that, Abroad in Japan, so... now I think I'm happy with how it is, but uh, I suppose if I ever do move to another country, I could change it to like, Abroad in Iceland, or Abroad <laughs> in Finland. You know change it with the times, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah. Or, or just make it super general that you can just live anywhere in the world and it, it could still work.
1: Well, yeah, I, I've got another channel, the second channel is called Chris Abroad, so I could kind of use that one as well, so.
0: You know, before you came to Japan, did you have like a particular, I don't know, stereotype? Or did you have like something in your mind before you even came?
1: You know, I thought it was quite a conservative country, um, quite a strong sense of identity. Which turned out to be true. Japan has a very strong sense of identity. Which is why I think I I find it so fascinating, you know. Obviously there's a lot of Western influence here, but Japan's done a very good job clinging on to its values, its beliefs, and its sort of way of life in a way that uh, uh, countries are doing less and less. But I don't really know what my image of Japan was, to be honest. I had some like weird dreams, some daydreams. When I was at university and I was like depressed as a student, wanting to travel the world, and I decided my first year I wanted to live in Japan and sort of uh, that's when I started really getting into it. I just sort of daydreamed playing poker with Japanese sailor men in Yokohama. thats I don't know why that image always comes from, I must have watched a film where that scene happened. I don't know what film it was, but I just pictured playing poker in Yokohama docks, and that was the extent of my planning and preparation before coming to Japan. Japan certainly turned out to be better than I thought it would be, and I still haven't played poker in a dockyard at Yokohama, so I've still got to do that. But uh, yeah, I think Japan. I don't know really. What do you think?
0: <laughs> I'm just wondering, like, were there any kind of surprises that you had when you when you when you came? Like, what were you what were you surprised
1: by when you just just arrived to Japan? I do think English would be more widely spoken, um, especially as it's it is everywhere. English, the English language is everywhere in Japan, from products and services to signposts and whatnot. But the number of people speaking it was, was lower than I expected. Now, to be fair, I did get placed in the countryside uh, where they don't need English. But I think that, that was something that surprised me a little bit, to be honest. Yeah, the, the lack of English that I could use in everyday life. Um, where I was placed, you know, for days at a time, I wouldn't speak a single English word. Um, which I think is kind of cool in hindsight. I think that was kind of cool. But uh, it ramped up the pressure early on. And, uh, you know, the first year or so was pretty tough. Uh, moving here. I think that's something I hadn't planned for, prepared for, is losing your independence when you come to another country where you can't speak the language or where you don't really understand the culture that well. Uh, It's very exciting and adventurous but also very damn stressful. And uh, I remember, yeah, coming here, I just felt like I couldn't do anything. um, From paperwork and language barriers to just not understanding the culture.
0: Was there like a particular turning point or so which, you know, just kind of you know, shifted that mentality where, you know, you, you started to just understand Japanese people more or you didn't really feel like a foreigner yeah. anymore, but but you kind of, you know, uh, were were in the group of Japanese people and you just kind of felt connected?
1: Yeah, I mean, it took about a year to get to that point. Um, the reason being, like a lot of people that come to Japan as teachers, I myself came on the JET program as it? assistant language teacher. The only other people I hung out with in my first year were just other teachers, other foreigners. And that's something I strongly advise against doing because I realised at the end of my first year, it felt like, I just felt like a tourist who'd sort of overextended their stay. And it wasn't until the second year when I'd learned a bit of Japanese and I could communicate and have basic conversation, when I had a, a group of Japanese friends around me that I started to really feel like I was integrating into the town and integrating into that sort of area. And the good thing about living in the countryside Japan, of course, is you feel like you can actually become a part of the local town. I remember in the third year that I'd been living in Yamagata, in that area, I opened the town magazine and I was on like every page for something I'd done that was unrelated. I'd won a speech contest somehow, I'd run an International Cultural Awareness Day, whatever that is. I'd run an English class and I was doing an akaiwa, and I was like, oh wow, I've done a good job becoming a part of the area here. So I say the turning point came making Japanese friends and speaking Japanese to some degree, to the point that I could communicate with the people around me and also my students, because that was never fun, not really knowing what my students were saying or not really understanding what they were going through, learning the English language. Learning Japanese helped me to understand what it was like for them as well as language learners.
0: Were We actually passionate about teaching English or so, or was it just because it was more like an entry point into
1: Japan? I, I was interested in it, I was, and I did do my degree was in linguistics and business but the linguistics aspect of it, we did a module on teaching, we spent some time talking about teaching and uh, and, and had to do some courses on it so I, you know, I wasn't really flying blind, I had some rough ideas but I was definitely more attracted to the idea of living in Japan and I'm not unique for that, there's no doubt like most people coming here to teach are just really excited to live in Japan and uh, so but no, I, I did take the job seriously. It took me a few months to get good at it. I wasn't very confident in it. And I had to learn the sort of the way that they teach in Japan and the sort of how it's, it's, it's very different to the UK, of course. But uh, no, I did, I did enjoy it. I did enjoy it. But not beyond three years. That would have been too much, for sure.
0: I'm just kind of curious like, have you ever you know, done any filmmaking or anything even prior to you know, coming to Japan itself? Or was it only after you started the YouTube channel?
1: When I was at school, I did an A-level in like film and media and it was always a dream to, to sort of get into filmmaking and, uh, uh, and do it. But then I gave it up around the age of 18. I was just like trying to be realistic with myself. Like I think a lot of people who want to be filmmakers, it's just something you can't do easily. So I gave it up and I did, when I was at university, I did have a little side job. I ran, a, I just, as an independent sort of business person, I, I did a shoot a few videos, um, some promo videos, corporate stuff. But I didn't really think I'd go beyond it as a hobby um, in my early 20s. I remember looking at some YouTube videos in Japan, and there really wasn't much going on at the time. There was a few small-time vloggers, YouTube was still kind of early on, and, you know, it's people more or less just sort of holding their camera phones walking down the street, eating, you know, a sandwich. And I thought, ah, I think I could do that, but maybe better. And, <laughs> just because I, I, you know, I, I thought, arrogantly perhaps, that uh, I could use my hobby as a sort of wannabe filmmaker, somebody who made videos in their free time and, and actually sort of do something with that and make a YouTube channel that was like one of the best video, one of the best YouTube channels about, about Japan. I, but I never would have thought it got to this point. I never, at the time, I never would think, oh, you know, there'll be a million people watching or, you know, thousands of people subscribe. I never thought that far ahead and I, I never thought it would go that far back then as well, You know, you know. The biggest YouTube channels in Japan at the time had about 40,000 subscribers, 50,000 subscribers. I would never think, I never thought at the time that it would go beyond a million, two million, you know, that was just crazy. So, yeah, it's, it's crazy to think about it now. Uh,
0: was, was there a particular point where, you know, you started it and, th- and then you just realized that, man, I just love making all these videos or like, hey, this could actually be like a, you know, uh, something which I can commit to for a really long time? Was there like a particular moment?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think after I'd done a year of making videos, I'd made no money, I'd had 100 subscribers, there really was no future in it, and I'd made about 6 or 7 videos, but I loved making those videos way more than my job, more than anything I'd ever done, knowing that I'd made a video with something with purpose, you know, um, something that was educational, like a video on culture shock, or a video on driving in Japan, or a video on learning Japanese, Making a video that was educational and entertaining felt incredible and knowing it helped people. And getting people from around the world message me and be like, wow, this is cool. Seeing Japan, the video's well made. Just that sort of feedback, you know. It's, it's such a powerful thing to make something, share it online and then receive like really kind words and feedback. And you know, I, I, again, I didn't think I'd, there would be a future after a year of doing YouTube, but I, I loved it so much that I had to carry on. I only made one video a month though. You know, I, I poured every hour of my free time into making those videos, like my heart and soul, and I really, really enjoyed that process. So, yeah, it wasn't until sort of another year and a half beyond that that I thought, oh, maybe I could do this full time if I'm not teaching. Um, but uh, you, you just know, when you when you love something, it doesn't feel like effort. Staying up till four o'clock in the morning, it doesn't feel like, oh, you know, you, you actually enjoy it, you want to do it because you're so passionate about it. And so you'll know when you've found your sort of calling in life because it won't feel like work and you won't look at the clock when you're when you're doing it.
0: Yeah, I, I uh, completely agree, I think.
1: Yeah, I'm sure you, you know as well, right?
0: We also, uh, st- I mean, at least for myself, you know, when I stumbled upon YouTube, I've done, I've worked at maybe 40 different companies or so even prior to um, doing YouTube itself. Some of it, um, you know, just two days, some of it I've done for years. Um, um, I originally did architecture and so on, but anyways, I think I never really liked or loved architecture itself. I liked architecture enough to actually do it. Maybe it's kind of like you're teaching in a way where, you know, you, you you like to do it, but it's not like you love to do it. You wouldn't, you know, it's not like uh, your, your passion or calling or so. Um, but then, uh, when we started YouTube, I was like, "Oh wow!" Um, you know, at the really beginning, there's challenges. Uh, you don't know how to edit videos. You're, uh, you know, watching YouTube YouTube tutorials yourself just to learn Final Cut or something like that.
1: <laughs> Absolutely.
0: Eventually, you get to a point where, "Oh, okay," you know, and you just kind of keep on uh, keep on making your videos better, almost so that so that yeah. the 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 I was constantly just thinking like, oh, how can we better our videos for the next video, for the next video, for the next video, so that, you know, your skills kind of improve.
1: Well, I mean, it's been kind of inspiring as well. I mean, I've seen your videos for years now on Asian Boss watching the sort of production quality go up. I remember it would have been a long time ago now watching Asian Boss and thinking this is sort of the future of of YouTube to have these sort of well-produced videos, right? not just vlogging with a camera in hand, but I felt like that was the way it was going to go. Uh, so, I, you know, I, I certainly looked at Asian Boss over the years and thought, I need to l- try and have production quality like this. I need to sort of take it seriously like this, so.
0: That's super nice of you to say that. I, I, I was just watching your content and I was just thinking like, man, you, you make really good videos, you know, <laughs> in terms of the quality too, so. <laughs> um, I, I was also kind of wondering uh, what what were the, biggest challenges you have as, uh, you know, doing, making YouTube videos?
1: It can be difficult sometimes, that that gulf between videos you wanna make and the videos you know will do well. You know, uh, I, after so many years of doing this, you instinctively know when a video is gonna do bad or not, or if it's gonna do well, just on the title. And it can be a hard thing to battle that, to sort of think, you know, well, I wanna do a video about this. If it was up to me, tomorrow I'd go out and film like a cool cinematic video, like, Japan at night or Sendai at night. But no one would watch it, it wouldn't do very well and it would be more like a passion project because you know that wouldn't do very well. It needs to be something else. There needs to be a story, there needs to be a catchy title. Um, so there's that. And certainly I remember I had a really difficult year in 2019 it was when just I just had some really poor performing videos back to back. One of the more serious things I did was this like Fukushima documentary. I, I went to Fukushima um, nuclear facility, the Exclusion Zone, and made a, a documentary that. Yeah, I was very passionate about that that video, but and, and interestingly it's done quite well now, but at the time, for the first few months, it did really badly and I was really disappointed because I poured a lot of, sort of time, effort, passion into that video and it didn't do well. And then straight after that I had three or four videos that just did terrible. And I thought, oh god, has something happened? Have I done something wrong? Has the algorithm changed? You know, the YouTube algorithm is always changing. It went through a massive shift in 2000 and uh, I think seventeen when they started focusing more on audience retention, right? And it wiped out a lot of vloggers. Back in in the early days of doing YouTube, it's very different. You'd log on and all the videos would be like independent vloggers, just people with a camera walking around filming themselves. And they'd get a lot of click throughs, they'd have a lot of clickbait titles. But there was really it Underneath it all, the audience retention wasn't very good. Nobody was actually watching past the first few seconds. So I remember in 2017 or so, YouTube kicked in audience retention and like, just wiped them all out. All these vloggers just disappeared overnight and YouTube's become a much more sort of serious place now where production quality feels a lot more important. But I thought I was caught up in that and I thought, oh, maybe my channel's done for now, you know. When your entire brand is sort of more or less all on YouTube, you're at the mercy of a, a big company like YouTube. It's quite a daunting thing. Um, You know, something goes wrong with YouTube. It affects affects us all, right? Yourself included.
0: Are you actually making videos just by yourself? Or do you also get like help or outsource a little bit? Or how do you go about making your videos?
1: So only in this year, in the last sort of eight, nine months, have I got help on the editing front. Really, before this year, while I did have the occasional cameraman, it was mostly just me. I would film it. As we are now, and uh, I would script it, film it, edit it, and sort of put it out, and it was all just me, and I didn't have a problem problem with that. Um, the only problem being that I couldn't upload that often, right, because I didn't have anyone else helping me. Um, so only this year did I get an editor in like April. Um, I've had a lot more help with cameras and stuff, and I've been able to sort of focus more on producing videos, and that's sort of my aim going forward. You know, um, obviously the Abroad Japan channel, it's it is definitely sort of, it is kind of about me, um, I'm in it. Um, I always wanted to just be a conduit into Japan, but at the heart of it all, I feel like I still need to be in those videos and I want to be a part of it. Um, so I can't just sort of, it's, it's very different from Asian Boss, right? You're trying to be like a proper sort of media empire and have lots of different presenters and sort of something bigger. And I did think about doing that, but then I thought, it's not really for me, you know. Um, my route was always going to be, even now it's really hard giving up editing it's really hard not doing it, and I still do it quite a lot to the frustration of my editor, who doesn't know why he's got a job sometimes I wonder but uh, <laughs> but no, it's hard to let go, it's really hard to let go it's, it is, but uh, I love doing Everything. I love having my fingers in every aspect of it. Mm.
0: I guess uh, there's uh, advantages and this had a- advantages. But what was your most memorable episode for you personally and why?
1: Well, I think one of the most interesting ones was that uh, the North Korean missile video I did, which was unplanned. It was unscripted. In 2017, I was woken up by a North Korean missile alert in Almory Prefecture. I wasn't even making a video at the time. I was off. Going to make a, an article about this this like rainforest area in Elmore, and uh, and then I wake up at 6 a.m. and there's like a missile alarm going off, which I've never heard. I didn't know it existed, and there's big alarm going missile no hasha missile no hasha this uh, kittertul said no missile like a North Korean missiles coming. And I was like what, where? And I and I in that moment I got I you know I did what any vlogger would do I think, and I got out my phone and started vlogging it and vlogging this ridiculous situation, this like missile alarm, the TV switching on, everything going to hell at sort of 6 o'clock in the morning. Utterly surreal. And then I posted it online in the afternoon. I posted it up on Twitter and Facebook and and, and YouTube and then I went off into the mountains to do this article and look for some bears. We didn't find any bears, it was very sad. But uh, I remember coming out the forest and my phone signal, which had been lost for sort of four or five hours, was back. And my phone was like bombarded with so much media attention. Global media, around the world, all these sort of newspapers and TV shows wanting to get in touch. Because I had posted one of the few videos capturing this sort of moment where this incident with North Korea-fired missile over Japan had happened. And uh, I'd had this sort of very raw video of me angry, swearing at like 6 o'clock in the morning. Topless as well, God forbid. in a crappy hotel, just going, oh, bloody North Korea firing a missile. And it was just surreal. The whole week I was on, like, these different TV shows in the UK. I remember I had to do, like, this, I think it was Panorama, this really big TV show in the UK where they interview and talk about it. And I was, like, the expert, the geopolitical expert on all things that were happening, even though I'd just been woken up by a missile. Um, So that was really surreal, and I won an award for it as well. I had to win, like, the... It was like the, the Key Word of the Year award. And I had to go on TV in front of like a thousand cameras and collect my award, which was utterly surreal. So that was that was one of the weirder ones. I've, I've just wrapped shooting a documentary with um, the actor Ken Watanabe. Uh, you might have seen like The Last Samurai, and Inception, and Pokemon, the movie recently. <laughs> but like, I've, I've met him and just done a documentary. So that was a lot of fun. So for me, it is those sort of bigger documentaries that dominate. That that I'm the most proud of, I'd think, and and I'd also, I did do a a massive, ridiculous travel series called Journey Across Japan, where I cycled 2,000 kilometers from, um, Yamagata in North Japan to Kagoshima in the south, and that was, uh, a nightmare. Six weeks, filmed every single day of it, nearly died countless times, but. Uh, I, I, at the time, I regretted that project immensely, but looking back at it now, I'm very proud of it. and I'm, I'm very pleased with it.
0: I watched a few of those episodes. Um, you know, when you were cycling to, um, and also congrats on on interviewing Ken Watanabe too. I don't know how you got in touch with him, but but uh, that's 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 uh, that's awesome too.
1: You know, it was it was a big part of it's just luck because Ken Watanabe he uh, he owns a a cafe here in North Japan. He's very involved in the cleanup effort and and sort of repairing the towns that were destroyed by the tsunami. And just got in touch and sort of proposed doing a documentary because what we've done abroad in Japan a lot over the years is sort of focused on the tsunamis and disasters and trying to show that Tohoku Tohoku is actually an amazing place. It's not just some sort of nuclear wasteland like a lot of people think it is because of, uh, you know, the the unfortunate history. Um, But uh, yeah, I I just sort of reached out to him and um, he he seemed pretty interested so he was was kind of lucky i think
0: i was just curious because you're such a visible uh, you know public figure right now like do you remember receiving any criticisms or backlash uh, for example of what you did on and off camera
1: i don't i don't i mean certainly the 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 fukushima one was a dangerous one because there was a lot of political debate and discourse in the comment section of that one, about nuclear power and, you know, although I, I tried to stay neutral on the issue. But, you know, I've been very lucky. I don't think I've ever courted any real controversy. I don't think I've ever been embroiled in anything like that. Um, so, no, I think I've been pretty, pretty lucky over the years, actually. Nothing like that has ever come up. Nothing really springs to mind. Hopefully I'm not forgetting anything serious that's happened. <laughs> <laughs> I'll continue to think. But no, for the most part, no, I, I've been very lucky in that in that regard, actually. Nothing bad has, has happened yet. God forbid. You know, you always worry, like, especially when I'm, I I don't make that many videos critical on Japan. Because, to be honest, I, I don't have that much criticism. I've had a very good experience here. But I did do a video like 12 Reasons Not To Move To Japan. And I think some people were disappointed by that. Even though I think the video was still very favourable to Japan. It just sort of said, you know, if you're someone that likes to be free, and not have lots of rules all the time, then you probably won't fit in very well here. But, like, those sort of videos, I think... And, and also, I had a, a weird period where every YouTuber was responding and reacting to a video I made called 12 Things Not To Do In Japan, where I sort of talked about, talked about the culture and the etiquette and things to just avoid doing if you're a foreigner here. A video that I don't really enjoy, because I hate seeing it pop up everywhere, but I still stand by the things I said in that video. But like that, that was, I had every day. There was someone else reacting to it, and, uh, you know, I remember feeling at the fir- at first a bit disappointed that the, you know, people wanted to hear a Japanese person's thoughts on what I was thinking, because I thought, devalued, I felt like, oh, maybe my opinion, is my opinion not important, is my experiences living here over sort of seven, eight, nine years not important, but I understand it now, I do, and uh, I don't think there's anyone wrong reacting to abroad in Japan, I just get a bit fed up of seeing trends emerge like that.
0: Yeah, yeah. I guess uh, you know one of one of the reasons why we were asking one of these questions is because mm. I think even for Asian Boss itself, there's so many topics or you know which it's quite controversial and so on too. Well, at, le- at least for us.
1: But the way you handle it's good though. You know when you know I've, when I I've watch an Asian Boss video about a controversial topic, usually you're going out into the street and sort of meeting people and hearing opinions. I and mean, I don't think there's can be much controversy in that, right? Just hearing people's opinions.
0: It could be because for the street interviews, we really try to be as neutral as possible, and we try to get both sides sure. and so on. And sometimes it's really difficult because we can't find the other side. No one wants to speak for the other side. Mm. You know, we, we really try to capture the other other sides and so on, and and um, you know, so that people can think critically by learning about like you know people who agree or disagree upon like you know different issues and so on. Um, that's what we really try to do, so that people can... Which,
1: which I feel there needs to be more of, particularly in Japan. You know, you often feel like there is often a, an absence of debate around topics, you know. So I think that is quite important. I think it is great what you're doing, sort of being people and hearing both sides. It needs to be done.
0: Yeah, I think, uh, yeah, so one of the reasons why I was asking that question previously was, um, you know, because cancel culture is kind of becoming bigger, sure. in a sense, and um, we're just curious, like, is it quite easy to get cancelled in Japanese society?
1: Oh, I don't know about that. I mean, I've seen I've seen some YouTubers in Japan who've had a bad, a sort of bad time, and they've done something, lots of people have been angry, you know, lots of millions of dislikes, and then they go away for six months, have a holiday. <laughs> come back and it's as as if nothing's ever happened you know, I think cancel culture is here but I think from what I've seen of influencers that have done bad things or things that haven't gone down well you can usually get around it you can get out of it um, it just takes time people forget things quickly um, unless it's something mer- like really bad like you've murdered someone but uh, but usually it's never that severe it's more like an opinion or something that's that's not played out well but uh, certainly over the years I've it's, it's changed how I make videos and what I say and do. Um, I don't think I've ever said anything that's offensive, really, or is is overly bad. But uh, it, it's scary, you know. I often think if I say this, will this cause problems? Um, there's the trouble with having a, a truly global audience. Or the benefit, I don't know, whatever way you want to look at it. I have a global audience. You know, people from 200 countries watch abroad in Japan. And so someone's always going to be offended somewhere. And you just have to sort of live with that, really, and accept that
0: yeah yeah i i agree i think um no matter how good or you know sometimes even for the people who are doing how would i say it like you know the the best things in the world they're still going to be haters and so i think ultimately you just kind of have to trust your north star and just believe in what you do and just kind of keep on going itself um yeah totally, totally absolutely How has the vlogging scene just kind of changed, do you think, throughout the years in Japan?
1: I think we've seen the production quality across the board go up. Uh, You know, the barriers to entry are undeniably higher these days. Um, Lots of little sort of vloggers who are just vlogging their life have just sort of disappeared. I think it's a shame in some respects, but it's also good that, uh, you know, we live in an era where if you're interested in somewhere like Japan, you can find so many great videos on it these days. Um, you know, there's so much great content which we just didn't have ten years ago. Certainly on abroad in Japan I've tried to find locations that you just don't ever hear about. And we went around Kyushu to places that people don't really cover, um, that aren't really covered in the guidebooks. Went to a place called Ikishima, which is an abandoned island that is like something i it's just the most incredible place I think I've ever been. There's like fifty abandoned buildings, an abandoned abandoned city on an island. It's just incredible, and no one ever told me about it. And I, I remember, I, it's one of the few things I've done a very good job researching myself. I stumbled across it myself, just going across Google Maps. I was like, what's that there? That looks cool. And we went there, it was, it was honestly incredible. And so I tried to find locations that you just don't see uh, featured anywhere else about Japan. And I think that's a real... That's, that's something I'm really proud about, I think, with the in Japan. That we go off the beaten track, and we don't just do your Tokyo, your Kyoto, your Osaka. We sort of go out and, and explore. The mountain ranges and the the islands that uh, are typically forgotten.
0: I see. I see. Do you also read like Japanese articles too, or how 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 good yeah. would you say your Japanese is? Can you research stuff in Japanese too?
1: I can. Yeah, yeah. I can read Japanese uh, far better than I can speak and and listen to it. And I yeah I I, I find a lot of um, this year I've done a lot of abandoned stuff haiku in Japanese right haiku and. All of the abandoned stuff. There is, there are no English articles on abandoned places in Japan. You do need to sort of search in Japanese, and so I found all sorts of cool things. Like an abandoned mining town, the abandoned island. We went to like an abandoned tunnel, an abandoned cave. Just got back from an abandoned theme park, and. I'm probably going to stop doing abandoned things because I've done too much now. But uh, that's the example of something that you just couldn't really find in English.
0: Do you feel like you're going to exhaust yourself with, you know, <laughs> with interesting places to go to in Japan eventually?
1: I think it could well happen. I, I, yeah, it could well happen, to be honest. But uh, that's why I think that's part of the reason I've got a studio is that I can do more commentary videos and do more videos indoors, uh, which is what I typically built the Abroad in Japan channel around, which is me in a room complaining about things. Um, So I'll probably go back to doing more things like that. But honestly, there's still so much to do. I've visited all 47 prefectures in Japan. I've visited pretty much every corner of the country, but I'm still discovering places. And I'd like to focus more on people as well. I've had lots of good Japanese friends that sort of recurring characters on the channel, but I'd like to go and meet more people and discover their stories. So that's something I'm thinking of doing.
0: I think uh, even at at Asian Boss, uh, we really try to Put the emphasis on people's stories itself.
1: Mm, absolutely. Yeah.
0: Typically, we would, uh, you know, look for people who are associated in uh, particular social issues and so on, like somebody who might be um, a hero, you know, trying to trying to fix this issue, or somebody who could be like a victim in this issue itself. Mm, and mm, then, mm. because by just telling their story, um, I feel like people can actually relate better and connect to that uh, person, and then. Ultimately, kind of connect to the issue uh, because you know people's stories itself. It's something which um, everybody can relate to. So,
1: I think one of one of my favorite videos on Asian Boss I saw would have been. Obviously, you do a lot of great videos in Japan, and they did a video on the most. It was the richest uh, hostess club girl in Roppongi, and she was on like two hundred thousand dollars a month or something, working in a hostess. But it was a very very tastefully made, very well sort of interviewed video. And I really thought that was really interesting. Um, documentaries like that, really quite fascinating and really, really nicely handled. Um, yeah, I'll not I'll try not just to tread on the toes of Asian Boss too much <laughs> if I do go out looking for people. But I mean, that's the thing, you've got such a, a big country, 126 million interesting people. There's so many great stories to be found, right? And you guys have done a fantastic job.
0: Oh, thank, thank you so much, thank you. yeah. I, I like. What, what do you think are the biggest challenges for, you know, influencers or YouTubers like in, or foreign YouTubers in Japan?
1: Well, the language, first of all, pretty, I guess that's a pretty easy answer, but yeah, language barrier. It can be hard to make, build a network and find these interesting contacts and find an interesting original story. But I think the, the real challenge is these days, it's harder to build a channel from scratch. If I had to start abroad in Japan from scratch with nothing, if I was just moving to Japan and I was like, right, I'm going to be a YouTuber, you know, you kind of have to do those videos, sadly. The things not to do in Japan videos and the wagyu, eat the wagyu video, you know, you've got to do them because they're the ones that get the views, that bring them the subscribers to build your channel, right? Um, so you've always got to tread a path that is boring and similar, but hopefully you can sort of put your own original twist on it.
0: If you didn't have to, you know, think about the views itself and you were mentioning you know, some ideas before about what type of videos you would rather do, but you know, what, what type of content would you really want to, you know, show the world? That's
1: a Good question. I think I would, I'd like to do a lot more cinematic stuff where I don't have to be in the video. You know, um, I've only done it two or three times and it never does well, but I enjoy it. And that's basically, I go off with a camera and a nice lens into the countryside or into the city at night and try and just film and capture the atmosphere in a way that uh, you can't do when you're vlogging, right? Just sort of capture it in a nice, cinematic way. But it doesn't do well, and it has to be sort of more of a passion project thing on the side, um, unfortunately. No matter what I do, I do try and want to be educational in some regard. So, for example, on scams in Japan. Scams to watch out for. Um, and, I, you know, I really want to do it. I want to make it funny and interesting, but most of all, informative and try and prevent people from losing lots of money. Because I've had some horror stories over the years, uh, particularly on the Abroad Japan podcast that I do, we get a lot of stories. And some of them are, people have lost thousands of dollars on their honeymoons coming to Tokyo and being scammed. So yeah, that's something, just, just, just trying to focus on educational topics, but give it a sort of humorous spin and integrate my own sort of sense of humor, I guess, into that. That's what I enjoy doing the most.
0: Actually, to- talking about you injecting uh, sense of humor, is your character? Would you say that the character in your videos are you know the real you, or are they like different <laughs> personas? Do you think?
1: It is a more a persona. I would say more of a persona because in real life, I'm not overly interesting. I'm rubbish, boring. Just, you, know, I'm not, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm fairly unremarkable. Um, I I do. I do exaggerate the sarcasm and the cynicism for for videos, and I think that's good, right? For me, a lot of the I don't enjoy presenting that much. The videos I enjoy presenting the most are where I am sort of exaggerating this persona, where I am being sarcastic and cynical, and it's who I want to be. But I'm actually probably too nice to be that much of a dick in real life. <laughs> but then maybe saying that that that's a very arrogant thing to say, you know. So I don't know, but it's definitely exaggerated uh, for comedic effect and definitely to be larger than life, right? That's the benefit of being a presenter. You can be who you want to be on camera. Um, and who I want to be is someone who is more outrageous, interesting and sarcastic than I, than I really am in real life. I think if I acted the way in real life that I, sort of, I am on camera, then I don't think I'd get very far or have very many friends, to be honest. <laughs>
0: I see, I see. And for your, uh, when you make videos, like are they scripted videos or are they kind of like freestyle?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I for the first few years, like the first five years, I don't think there was a single video on Abroad in Japan that wasn't scripted where I didn't think about what I was going to say before I filmed it and sat down in front of the camera. Um, just because with a video, you've got a finite amount of time. You want to keep people engaged. You want to keep people entertained. I want to make sure I don't ramble or mumble or go on about something too long. I want to get to the point. So I always scripted it. And then as the channel got bigger and I started doing travel content outdoors, there, aren't, there are things you just can't script, right? You can't script things when you're out, outside running around with a camera um, on a mountain or a volcano or riding a horse or in a plane. You can't script those moments, things just happen. But uh, even now I do try and script it where possible a little bit. But I think because Abroad in Japan has become uh, successful and I've become a, a, a bit of a figure, I guess, a public figure, I've become a bit of a figure! Why does that sound so bloody wrong? I've Because I what I've done and become a bit of a public figure though, I can relax a little bit and just be myself a bit more um, in a way that I couldn't early on, right? When I wasn't an established sort of individual. So that's definitely helped. But no, for the most part, when I'm in here, filming in here from now on, I'm probably going to script the videos as much as I can. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean word for word. But it means that I have a rough idea of every sentence I'm saying, what I'm going to say, just so I can make the videos as interesting and as engaging as possible. And I find that the videos that are the best that I follow and watch are typically the same. They're usually scripted uh, by the presenter, you can tell.
0: What would you say your secret sources for making your videos?
1: <laughs> secret source. Um, put the topic and the title at the forefront of what you do. For example, for this. Scam video. Sounds bad. A scam video. I'm going to scam my viewers. Now, I for this scam video, you know, I I thought the title first, what I'm going to call it. I'm going to call it, you know, Six Scams in Japan to Avoid, or Six Scams You Should Know, you know. I think, oh, a video on scams will be good. What would the title be? Then you go to the title, and then you sort of reverse engineer it, right? Because you know what titles do well. Typically a title like... 12 things not to do to do in Japan. 12 reasons not to move to Japan. I made that title up before I had the content there. And that is the best approach if you want to succeed on YouTube. Think of, always ask yourself, what's the title? What would people want to click on? What would people want to watch? And then reverse engineer that and create the content that can sort of hit that title. And then I would say, I do spend a lot of time editing and scripting and making sure I have control over the entire process, right? In the same way Apple make their computers and they control the software and the hardware and they have total control, I feel the same with my videos, right? I try to make sure it's exactly in my image, exactly how I want it. Uh, So yeah, be a control freak and think of the title and you'll succeed.
0: (laughs) I mean, you seem like a very you know nice guy, uh, the type of guy who, might not really get stressed that easily. Do you get stressed easily, or do you, do you, how do you deal with it?
1: Um, drinking. <laughs> well, to be fair, um, yeah, I uh, I do get stressed a lot. I am quite a pedantic, terrible person. I'm very, I am quite stupid with my ambitions. I do have ambitions that are quite high and difficult to to get, and and I make my life difficult for myself. I think, but. The studio tour, right, I edited that until, I think, 4 o'clock in the morning. Then I rendered it, that took an hour or two. By the time I got it up, it was about 7am. And I felt like my heart was going to explode. Because when you stay up all night working on something, you, you get like heart palpitations. Um, and that's like it for every video I make. I, I often edit up until the last minute before I upload. I put myself through hell doing it. But just, it's worth it every time. When I upload the video and I see the response, and people enjoyed it or they've laughed or they've learned something, it makes it all worthwhile getting to the point where I'm about to have a heart attack. But no, I I do put myself through it and I do stress out a lot. And um, I care a lot about my public image, I think. Um, I can do a podcast, right, twice a week. And I, even now, after doing that three or four years, I still feel terrified when I'm speaking because I don't have control over editing that. We record it, it goes up a day later, people listen to it for an hour or whatever. Um, whereas with a video, when you film something, you can control it, you can go into editing and just cut it out or do it again. You can take it again and again. Um, so I care about my public image and I work myself to death editing, but there's still no regret doing it. I still have you know no regrets about the way I live because it's been a very Rewarding and uh, incredible experience.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, look, I agree. I mean, I've 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 had many of those nights, and I think um, you know, for a lot of the viewers who might not know, I think majority of the videos that that I've been involved with, you know, making is um, yeah. me not being in front of the camera. Like I'd say like mm. 70% of the videos, um, 80% of the videos that I've been involved, like it's been me actually directing the whole thing. Whereas people don't mm-hmm. don't know about that, you know? And so they can see the episodes which I'm in inside, but they just don't know, you know, who, who was on the day just, you know, putting everything together. It's seldom that I would edit these days, but um, but when I do, I have had those those nights sometimes um yeah i guess another question i have to ask is uh how do you stay how do you stay motivated
1: i always just worry that i'm not making the most of the time i have i get very weird about it i don't know why that is really i think i just have big expectations out of life for some reason and i want to make them happen so i keep trying to make sure every day matters every day counts the days where i'm not doing anything when I'm sitting at my desk in my chair is when I'm sort of depressed and feeling low and it's when I'm out making videos or doing something that I'm at my, at my best and at my happiest. But I know I, I'm quite a goal-orientated person. I always try and write my goals. Every year I write my goals, put them on an A3 sheet of paper. It needs to be A3, so they're big. And I stick it above my desk. And for the most part, most of those things happen. Because the goals I set, like move to Japan, that was one of them. Get on the JET programme and complete my degree, that was one of them. The next one was uh, become a full-time YouTuber, and I set that in about 20, 2013, and that happened in 2015. The next goal was get a million subscribers, and I set that in 2015, hit that target 2018. It's all about just having those goals, setting them, and just sort of keep pushing forward, because when you don't have a goal and you don't know which direction to go in, it's when you start to panic and worry and, you know, life loses a bit of meaning. So that's what keeps me motivated also nightmares I have a lot of nightmares that I'm a 75 year old man on their deathbed and I'm like shit I wish I'd done that I wish I'd done that oh no and so that's good have have nightmares that's the best way to stay motivated to be honest okay <laughs> try and work. I, I just but I do worry a lot about time and making sure I make the most of time yeah yeah
0: I, I, I completely agree um I think uh, one of the things which I kind of appreciate more is uh, daily rituals for myself. Mm, um, mm, mm. I would—it's uh, not a journal, but I would read like um, like a Stoic, um, like a yeah, uh, you know, one a daily of the, Stoic. Yeah, one of one of these quotes, wine and holiday. then yeah, from one Holiday or so, and then I'll just like write uh, you know write down my thoughts regarding it, or I would meditate uh, about twenty minutes a day or so uh you know just visualize things or just kind of appreciate things and etc
1: i think that's a really great thing to do i I do things like that like i study japanese for about an hour every day and uh, yeah stoic philosophy in particular something something that's sort of been guiding me since 2014 the last few years and without that you know I, i think i would have been lost it's a bit difficult when you're sort of raised and you're an atheist or an agnostic or you don't have religion in your life, it can be hard to clutch onto something to believe in, right? And Stoic philosophy has certainly helped me a lot over the years. Turning back and listening to the advice from the Greeks from 2,000, 3,000 years ago has been a great source of, just given me a great sense of direction in life. And uh, to any anyone watching this who just doesn't know what they're doing or how they're, you know, just is confused about their way of life. Like I'd strongly recommend reading some some stoic books to be honest, because uh, it will help you out big time.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely, and I think um, you know another thing which I appreciate is with the YouTube videos that you know we we make, we always try to think like you know what kind of value we can actually give to the to the world, and you know I think that's the same the same as you know you too when you make your content, even for the, the scam video too, you don't want, ultimately, you don't want people to get scammed. You know, if we focused on just pure entertainment itself, I'm sure that we could have also grown tremendously quickly. But, you know, I think if you can put education and also, you know, entertainment or, you know, sit together, edutainment in a sense, um, by, Having interesting information inside and also it's engaging enough to just kind of watch till the end. I think that's that's something which is valuable.
1: Absolutely. I think I think that's the sort of the holy grail of, of content where you can teach someone something of value and hopefully make them laugh and think along the way. And that's one benefit of scripting your videos, right? You know. So for this scam video, I've got the six scams to avoid, each one more ridiculous than the last. But I've got my own stories, and experiences, and I've thought very carefully about each line in that video. I want people to think about something and learn about Scam, and then I'll entertain them with the next line. So it's all about having that sort of balance.
0: You know, because you like the control and you like to have, you know, your content in particular way and, and so on, I think guys like Joe Rogan, you know, he really made it a thing which, you know, everybody would just want to almost become like, you know, that that, you know, podcaster yeah. or... What made you decide to do it?
1: I enjoy podcasting, but nowhere near as much as making videos. You know, I love the filmmaking process. Podcast, you put on the microphone, just talk for half an hour or an hour, whatever. And I do enjoy doing it. I have a great great co-host, a guy called Pete Donaldson, who was a a former radio DJ and a very prominent podcast host in the UK. Um, If I hadn't met Pete, I don't think I would have done it. Meeting the right person to do it with was, was a key factor. But also, I just do so much stuff in everyday life here that I don't talk about in the videos just because I make only one video every week or every 10 days or whatever in a podcast I can really cram in a lot of those experiences and I can sort of help people and I really love kind of reading out the questions and stories from listeners and engaging with listeners giving them advice and things and I I often feel like I'm more open on the podcast as well because there's no comment section to read Uh, (laughs) with a podcast you can spew out more opinions and not have to worry about the ramifications in a way that you do with YouTube. So I'm a lot more honest and open and frank on the podcast. I think as well.
0: Well, you know, you're you're a great uh, host, and you're you're a great uh, you know. I think you're a great speaker. You know, we would oh, love to have are. you as like our our, <laughs> our guest guest host and Asian Asian boss to to you know cover some type of a documentary or something like that too. That'd be a lot of fun. Yes, yes. If you're up for it, uh, please let us know. Absolutely. Yeah.
1: And I hope you can come and see the studio with your own eyes. It'll be a lot of fun.
0: Absolutely. Like right now, what are the social issues or social causes that you're most passionate about in Japan?
1: I I did feel like it was almost like fate, I guess, to be put into hockey straight after the earthquake and tsunami. And so I've always been, I've tried to be quite active in promoting the sort of reconstruction efforts and and sort of the stories of people along the coastline. who I felt got neglected. Because of the nuclear reactor and that sort of incident, that overshadowed the tsunami. And, you know, 20,000 people lost their lives as a result of the tsunami. Whereas the nuclear reactor, while terrible and bad, we haven't seen those sort of figures. And I, I feel like it was it was sad that they were overlooked, all these people, um, these people along the coastline. So I've tried to focus on the tsunami. And and that's also why I reached out to Ken, because I'd hoped to make a video with him before about this. and. And that has been really rewarding, just sort of being involved, trying to change the image of Tohoku from this wasteland. Certainly straight after the, the nuclear reactor, when I first got here in those first few years, I used to get a lot of comments from people saying, you know, Japan, you'll die in Japan of radiation sickness. You're going to die. Uh, these horrible comments from horrible people. And they said, you know, Japan was going to, everyone was going to die. It was some really nasty comments. So I felt like... I wanted to sort of counteract that and make sure I showed Tohoku for what it really is, which is in my view the, the the most stunning, most incredible place in Japan so it's felt good to change that image and and promote Tohoku in that way and I feel responsible because there wasn't at the time there wasn't that many other youtubers doing it most youtubers were in Tokyo, so I felt a, a a strange sense of responsibility i guess yeah to do that
0: that's 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 really that's really nice that that you're doing that um you know, how do you, think, how do you think Japan's changed you?
1: I think I'm more wary of how what I do affects other people in public, you know. Uh, yeah. I remember when I went back to the UK for the first time in a few years, I was sitting on the train going from Heathrow Airport into London and there was just someone, a seat behind me with their phone, just playing really loud music, really annoying, terrible music, blasting out for everyone in the carriage. And I just thought, bloody hell, Get me back on the plane to Japan, where this doesn't ever happen. I want some peace and quiet. I'm bloody tired. I've been flying for 12 hours. People just don't care as much in the UK, right, about how their actions affect the people around them. And I like that in Japan. I do think that's good. Um, So i say I'm more wary about what I'm doing and how it's affecting other people. Um, I think I am more... I thank people for their hard work. As well. It's quite a big thing in Japan, right? We we always thank people at the end of the workday, like what's going on this uh, you know, or sort of being a lot more mindful about thanking people. And so I, I do that a lot more. Whenever someone helps me, I'm I'm more grateful and I and I vocalise that in a way that I didn't used to do. So I think for the Japan has made me a better person for the most part. I do. But certainly living here. Learning a language, learning a culture has also made me have a different perspective on the world that I wouldn't have had before. And I look at the UK a lot more as an outsider now. I don't feel like I'm just a British guy, I feel like I, my, my sense of identity has changed a little bit and I look at the UK a lot more from the outside. Do you have like reverse culture shock or something?
0: <laughs> when you go back you're just like, oh I, I forgot how it was like or something like that.
1: Oh, absolutely. I, I really do have a lot of reverse culture shock when I go back. And uh, it's going to be interesting. This is the first time in two years that I'll have gone back now. So I think that's going to be quite a powerful thing. Um, not having gone back in two years and, and seeing how the UK has changed. It's going to be really trippy.
0: Just kind of going into future plans now, um, You know, would you say you're going to be permanently based in Japan from now? What's your plans?
1: I. I don't have any concrete plans. A lot of people ask me like, when are you leaving Japan? When are you going home? When are you you disappearing? And uh, I mean, I've just got this studio, so it's going to be a while now I think. It's going to be another few years. But I don't ever think I'm going to truly leave Japan. I think what will happen is I will incrementally spend more time back in the UK, right? I'll go back there a bit more. Right now, my time is pretty much like 100% Japan, 0% the UK. And I think it'll sort of slowly start to slip the other direction. Um, but you know, if I moved back to the UK tomorrow, I would be deeply unhappy. I wouldn't be happy because my purpose, my friends, my life—it's all here in Japan, right? It—it it feels like my home now. You know, I—I I, I have way more friends here, a way bigger network than I have in the UK. Having visited all forty-seven prefectures and met so many people and done all these things, I feel like I know Japan really well, and I—I I feel like it would be hard to walk away from all that. But. Uh, You know, one of my goals and one of my dreams is to make a short film and to make some films and some professional-level stuff to go on TV or Netflix or whatever. And that hasn't happened yet. And now that I've got this formidable network of friends across the country and now I know Japan really well, I feel like I'm ready to sort of take a step in that direction as well. Um, It's all been sort of building up to that moment. There's not that many good foreign films made in Japan and I'd like to change that, absolutely, you know. Uh, so that's something I'm very keen to do.
0: What kind of film do you think it's going to be? What's the what's the net? You know, what's the Netflix type film that you're going to be creating?
1: That is a very good question. I think if I had to do a genre, it would probably be like science fiction thriller, something along those lines. Probably a th- thriller though. Yeah, but honestly, I, I don't know. I've got a few ideas at the moment, but it's going to take some time to really flesh them out and dig a bit deeper into them.
0: Got it. Why, why do you want to go in that direction? It, 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 it almost feels a little bit different from the type of you know, content that, yeah, that yeah. you make right now.
1: Well, I mean, it's, it's always been a dream, a dream that I sort of threw away back when I was 18 or whatever. As I said earlier on, you know, I had this dream of being a filmmaker that I had to sort of put on hold or let go. And just sitting here in this set, right, I feel like I'm in another world almost. And I'd like to capture that in a film. Like I, the, the, what I love about films is that escapism, right? You put on a film, you escape into another world. And that's something that's really attractive to me. And that's kind of why I built this studio, I guess, that I can sort of escape into this cyberpunk Blade Runner-esque world that I've had locked in my head for so long. It's the physical manifestation of that um, in, a, in a weird kind of way. So, yeah, being here in the sets really motivated me and fired me up for that, to sort of keep going, and to make that dream a reality, I guess,
0: yeah. Well, thanks, Chris, for the super long conversation. Um,
1: oh, it's been a lot of fun, Kay. Yeah, thanks. It's been great to finally meet face to face.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much for the conversation. And, um, you know, it would be really nice to meet up with you one day, including Stephen, um, a co-founder of Asian Boss and, and um, you know.
1: Yeah, come on over. You guys are welcome anytime. There's There's some, some sake behind the bar that's ready to go when you do
0: sounds good sounds good so you know keep up the work i think you're doing really great work and you know i hope you just continue to show the beautiful japan culture of japan and you know beautiful places inspire other people and 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 so on so you know good
1: luck thank you so much Kay, and uh, i hope to see you in person
0: absolutely okay take care then okay